Please remain standing as I have the privilege of sharing today's reading with you. It will be Mark 14, verses 12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there to prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came to the 12. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it broke, he broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take this, it is my body. And he took a cup, and we had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Matt, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see you as always. My name is Dave Haunt, if you don't know me, and it is my privilege to open God's word with and for you. So who has heard the saying, and you can raise your hands if you want to, who has heard the saying, the longest journey you will ever take is the 18 inches from your head to your heart? Who's heard that? Okay, just a few of you. It's a fairly famous quote, actually, um, and it's from a British politician whose name is Andrew Bennett. And what he's talking about, obviously, is the difference between knowing something and believing something. The foot and a half is the distance between intellect and faith. It is the journey that one must take to truly know God and to find their hearts transformed and their life made new. Many people, as we know, claim to believe in God, but a cursory examination of their life will reveal little evidence of the belief that they claim to have. And I think the reason behind that discrepancy is this. It is possible to believe in God historically and culturally and intellectually without believing in him spiritually. You can believe in him up here, but not know him here. A person can believe that God exists or that Jesus is his son or that he died and rose again three days later just as much as they can believe that Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States, the 16th one. But that is not what the Bible means by belief. Belief is far more 
than intellectual assent or knowledge. True belief captivates the heart and the soul and the spirit of a person, and it demonstrates itself through obedience and trust and dependence upon that which one claims to believe. In the same way, a person can hear the words of God and the commands of God and demonstrate their faith or a lack thereof. Perhaps he has told you to do something and you've left it undone. Perhaps he's told you not to do something and you've done it anyway. In either case, faith has not been executed. You could say that you believe that a chair will hold you up, but the proof is in the sitting. If you never take a seat claiming to believe that that chair will hold you up, it is fair for somebody to say, I don't think you believe it at all. According to scripture, faith in God is not something that we conjure on our own. We love the idea of faith, but when it comes to faith, and faith in God specifically, we need to understand that this is a God thing. As Paul makes clear in Ephesians 2, while salvation is certainly depicted as a free gift of God, so too is the faith to believe. Even the faith that you need to believe is a gift of God. And our hearts must be open to the things of God and closed off to the things of this world if we are to enter into God's kingdom. As Jonathan mentioned last week, the gospel is unique in that it has the ability to soften the heart of one and harden the heart of another. And it is our receptivity to or rejection of Christ himself which determines our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Regardless of our exposure to Christ or our service for him. And we see the truth of these ideas in no greater way than in the lives of the 12 disciples. The 12 that Jesus chose one by one, knowing full well that one of them would betray him. John 6, 70 reads, and this is Jesus speaking, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? So we ended last week with this stunning juxtaposition of the worship of Jesus and the beginnings, really, of his betrayal. A betrayal by one of his own, where love and faith and greed and rejection collided. And we continue in a similar theme today. Last week we finished with these words, beginning in verse 9 of Mark 14. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, the woman who broke the alabaster jar, will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And it is on the heels of this dichotomy that we enter into Mark's telling of the Lord's Supper. 
Beginning in verse 12 of today's passage. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Friends, in Jewish tradition, there are three distinct holidays that are celebrated each spring. We have Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Day of First Fruits. And it's a week-long celebration that really began 1,500 years before Christ ever came, each with a special connection to God sparing their lives and freeing them from their captivity in Egypt. And in verse 12, we're at, or just before, the front end of this celebration. Remember that a Jewish day is different in that it lasts from sundown to sundown. So verse 12 likely begins as their Thursday is ending and as Friday is just about to begin. And it is on Friday in which they will eat the Passover meal. But again, their Friday was probably our Thursday evening. The sequence doesn't matter as much as the fact that it happened. So don't get too wound up in it. I'm just trying to help you is that you look at the text and are as confused as I was. So I tried to look into it a little bit. Continuing in verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Does this sound familiar to you? This planning ahead of time, it really is an echo of an event that happened scripturally just days before this, Palm Sunday, if you remember. In both the entrance to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the preparation of this Last Supper, Jesus had prepared things ahead of time and before the disciples had asked him. It was already set. All that needed to be done in accordance with the scriptures was already laid out. And what that tells us is that Jesus orchestrated his last days and hours. And though he knew that those last days and hours would be filled and ordained with opportunities to prepare his disciples for what would come next, they would also include rejection and betrayal and abandonment and false condemnation, incredible physical, mental, and spiritual abuse, and his ultimate death. And the Godhead had planned all of it. He planned all of it in accordance with his sovereign will, which is why Jesus could say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Listen to Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. He has put him to grief. It's a stunning idea. That God had been planning each moment of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection since before creation. So that we might be saved and not 
spend eternity apart from God in hell. Friends, it is the love of God and it is the will of God that we see on display here. With every eye dotted and with every T crossed that he might fulfill all righteousness and bring us home to the Father. Friends, God wants us to know and he wants us to see in these details and in this planning that our salvation is not an accident. Before one day came to be, he set out to rescue you and me. Secondarily and practically speaking, Jesus made these details and these directions clear. On Palm Sunday, he was specific about what animal they would find and where they would find it and what to say to somebody who would come and ask them. And here, just before the Passover meal, Jesus told them who they would meet and how to identify him and then what they should do next. Specifically speaking, carrying water was a woman's job in this time and place. It was unusual to find a man carrying water. And if you would find a man carrying water, he would generally be carrying it in animal skins, not jars. And so this would have been an easy guy to identify. And by referring to himself as the teacher, it is likely that Jesus and this homeowner knew one another. Perhaps he was a follower of Jesus. Or that Jesus was trying to protect his disciples and the homeowner by not using his name unnecessarily and stirring up his enemies before his appointed time. Why else would he call himself the teacher? According to Luke's gospel, it is Simon Peter and it is John who are the two disciples that Mark is referencing here. And upon finding this man, just as Jesus said that he would, they entered the house. And Simon, Peter, and John prepared the Passover meal, which, if you don't know, consists of a lamb and bitter herbs and unleavened bread and crushed fruit and wine was added somewhere along the way. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after the other, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So with the twelve gathered, the very men that Jesus had chosen to lead his church and spend his three lives of earthly ministry with, he spoke. And he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Friends, when we see Jesus begin sentences with the word truly, Understand that it was if Jesus was saying, pay special attention. This is going to be hard for you to hear, but it's important. And for all that the disciples had ever heard Jesus say, the declaration of his betrayal by one of his own must have been especially alarming. Certainly none of them 
could have imagined that they would or could do such a thing. And yet, while it was only one who truly betrayed Jesus, as we will see in the weeks to come, they all abandoned him. They all abandoned him. And each disciple at this meal asked Jesus if they were the one. Is it I? But Jesus did not identify his betrayer other than to say that he was among them. One of the twelve, a friend. One who was sharing a meal with them together. And one who would ultimately dip his bread as Jesus dipped his. Do you know what that detail likely means? He was probably sitting right next to him. Friends, there is no greater treachery. There was no greater treachery. There is no greater treachery in the Middle East than to betray one whom you have broken bread with. It is that sacred to them. Continuing in verse 21, it says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This is one more indicator of the God-ordained, predetermined, scripture-fulfilling nature of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection, that nothing would or could be left undone, including Judas's betrayal. In Matthew's account, we actually learn that even Judas asked, Rabbi, is it I? Even Judas asked. I mean, you want to talk about being clueless and just missing who Jesus was. You want to talk about wickedness and deceit? It doesn't get more clueless. It doesn't get more wicked or deceitful than planning to betray God and acting as though he is unaware of it or that the consequences aren't going to be disastrous and yet that's what Judas did. But listen to how Jesus replies to Judas's question in Matthew 26, 25. Judas asks, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus responds, you have said so. In other words, I know it's you, Judas, and so do you. I know it is you, Judas, and so do you. Judas Iscariot, as many of you know, was one of the 12 disciples who lived with Jesus. He walked with him, he talked with him, and he witnessed every miracle imaginable, even ones that are not written in Scripture. He saw God as no one had seen him before, with every evidence for Christ's deity and claims of Messiahship, and yet he did not truly believe in him. Instead, he deliberately and methodically betrayed him. We are not told explicitly why Judas sought to betray Jesus, but there are some strong clues. Perhaps it was simply greed. John says in his gospel that Judas was in charge of the group's money and he would steal from time to time what was put in it. In Matthew's gospel, we find Judas asking the religious leaders, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? This is power positioning. 
This is looking to fill the coffers of his own pockets. Greed could have been the motivation, but resentment could have motivated Judas as well. All of Israel, as we have talked about, wanted a conquering Messiah. One to free them from Rome's occupation. But Jesus came as a suffering Messiah. And many of Jesus' disciples were frustrated with his unwillingness to usher his kingdom in by force, including Judas. But it was Judas alone, as we learn, who plotted to get rid of Jesus altogether. If Jesus wasn't going to be the kind of Messiah that he wanted and do the things that he thought was right, why not turn him in? Why not abandon him? How many of us have created a Messiah of our own making? And as soon as he doesn't do what we think he should do, when we think he should do it, how we think he should do it, are we ready to abandon him and turn him in? Could have been greed, it could have been resentment, but perhaps the clearest motivator for Judas's betrayal is twofold. His wicked heart and an opportunistic devil. Judas's wicked heart and an opportunistic devil. In Luke 22 and in John 13, we find Satan entering in to Judas. That's how the gospel writers depict it. Also in John 13, we find Satan putting it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. It's a scary and a sobering thought, isn't it? If you're like me, you know, you read the end of last week's text and you read this portion of our text where you find a follower of Jesus willing and ready to betray him and you have to wonder, could I do this same thing? Have I done this same thing? Well, it's important for us to understand that no one is innocent. No one is without sin. Rather, according to Romans 6, we are told that all are born slaves to sin. A slave does not get to choose if they will follow, if they will obey, or what it is that they want to do. And the Bible tells us that you and I and all who are born are born slaves to sin. We are susceptible to Satan's schemes. And where sinful passions hold sway, Satan is powerful. But, and this is the encouragement, so listen to this. Satan can only enter a willing heart. He can only enter a willing heart. And he can only make suggestions to a corrupt mind bent on wickedness. He can only occupy an unoccupied soul. If Christ lives in you through faith, Satan cannot occupy because Christ reigns and rules there. More than all of that, 
While those things are encouraging, perhaps the most encouraging thing is this. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. He can only do what God allows him to do. God and Satan are not equals. God and Satan are not slugging it out for power. Satan is a detoothed dog at the end of a very, very short chain, and God's hand is at the other end. So while Satan was certainly instrumental in Judas's betrayal, it was Judas's sinful and idolatrous heart that made him a target. It was a sinful and idolatrous heart that made him a target. He didn't want God. He wanted everything else. So be mindful, my friends, of your own heart, of your own mind. Pay attention to your wicked thoughts and desires. And learn to distinguish the voice of Satan from the voice of God. Satan will want you to disobey God for the sake of your own happiness and glory. He'll want you to disobey God for the sake of your own happiness and glory. While God will always, always, always demand obedience to his word and his spirit irrespective of what you think is right or what makes you happy. Do you hear me? It is about obedience to his word, irrespective of what you think is right or what you think will ultimately make you happy. Friends, God is after our holiness and he is after his glory and he is after his name's sake above all things. This isn't about you and me. It's about him. Judas fell because he followed his own wicked heart and he listened to the voice of Satan and because he did, he committed the most wicked sin imaginable. Finishing up in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Every element of the Passover meal had symbolic meaning. But rather than focusing on the slavery and the suffering of of Israel in Egypt, as was tradition, Jesus reinterpreted each of these elements in himself. No longer about the suffering and the slavery of Egypt, but reimagined, re-identified, reinterpreted in him. And Jesus became the fulfillment of what, what each element had always represented. The bread was no longer a symbol of sinlessness in Israel. That's why the bread was unleavened, by the way. So the bread was no longer a symbol of sinlessness in Israel. It was now represented the reality of the sinless Son of God who would become sin for all who would believe in him. 
And the cup no longer represented the redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It now represented a new covenant that God was establishing with his people through the forgiveness of sins by the spilled blood of his son. And Jesus' command to his disciples and his command to you and I and all who would partake in this supper is take and eat. Take and drink. Freely receive what I am offering you is what Jesus said to each of us. Consume all that I am. Take me in. Friends, in communion, we declare that Jesus is our spiritual food and nourishment. Represented in the bread, which is his body, and the cup, which is his shed blood. In communion, we remember the benefits of Christ's mediation for us. Standing in the gap. And we remember that our only hope for life and salvation is to take him in to our innermost being. Now, of course, the understandings and the interpretations of the bread and the wine, very many of you probably know that. But to be clear, Disciples Church does not believe that the bread and the wine are the actual and physical body and blood of Christ. Rather, we believe that they are outward signs of an inward truth, which point us to the reality found in Christ's body given and his blood shed for us on the cross so that we may remember him. Friends, finally in this text, we witness. It's an incredible thing. We witness the last Passover becoming the first communion. Do you realize that both are happening at the same time? In this meal, the old covenant is finished and the new covenant is announced. Fulfilled in the reality of what the bread and the cup represent. Declaring that Jesus Christ is the true Passover lamb. And that every other Passover lamb was a foretaste of the one who alone is spotless and blameless and without blemish. And that no other lamb truly satisfied God. Otherwise, there would have been no reason for Jesus to come. If the spotless lambs of earth satisfied the wrath and the justice of God, Jesus could have stayed home. But they didn't. Friends, the true Lamb of God did come. And he walked among us. And he sat at the head of this final Passover meal 2,000 years ago, fulfilling the promises that God had made and all that Scripture had foretold of him. And in just a few hours from this Passover meal, God's chosen lamb would not just forgive sins and remove the guilt of the past year as had been done before. Rather, through his body given and through his blood spilled, he would forgive all sin and remove all guilt for all time. 
Disciples Church, today's passage demonstrates the difference between knowing about Jesus and truly knowing him. You can know about him, but not know him. This passage showed the difference between receiving Christ or rejecting him. Twelve disciples saw God, heard God, and lived with God for three years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the evidence for who Jesus was and what he came to do was undeniable. Still, only 11 truly took Christ into themselves. Though all of them spent time with him and sat in the upper room with him. And Judas, although he saw, heard, and experienced the same thing as the others, though he spent time with Jesus and though he served Jesus and shared a portion of this final meal with him, ultimately betrayed Jesus to his enemies. Because all of Judas's head knowledge and all of his experiences, everything he saw and heard, did not lead to heart change. Because it is God alone, God alone, who turns an unbelieving heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It is God alone who saves, and it is God alone who condemns. And he does so not according to what we deem fair or sensible, but according to his perfect will and to his good pleasure. As Paul writes in Romans 9, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Whomever he wills. So friends, let me encourage you to see this passage as both an invitation and a warning. It is an invitation to take Christ into yourself by faith and receive a new heart and resurrected life. And it is a warning to those who have heard the good news of Christ but refuse him as Lord and Savior, leaving their hearts open to the devil's planning and scheming and certain death. But it is also a warning to those who mistake their Bible knowledge and their church attendance, their good deeds, and their religious sacraments for a bargaining chip to use with God on the last day. He knows well those who truly belong to him. You can know your Bible front to back and not know Jesus. Do you know that the religious leaders of the day knew the first five books of the Old Testament by memory? And when Jesus stood before them, they didn't notice him. They rejected him. Friends, you can attend church and not truly be part of his body. And you can take the bread and you can take the cup and not truly have fed on the person of Christ. 
For 2,000 years, there have been many who have heard the good news of Jesus. Believed things happen exactly as the Bible said they did, but they live as though it makes no difference. Continuing to live for themselves rather than for him who loved them and gave himself for them. And there are likely people like that right now within the sound of my voice. Maybe you are one of them. So if your story is, no, I'm somewhere along this 18 inches, the 18-inch road from my head to my heart, I think I believe it up here, but I guess my life decisions would say that I don't believe it down here. I'm asking you to be so bold as to ask God to complete that journey for you. To give you a new heart and a new mind. A mind like his and a heart after his own. Would you stop doubting and believe? Would you quit refusing him and surrender? Because, friends, the more knowledge of Christ that one has, the more convicted one becomes. While continuing to reject Jesus, the harder your heart becomes. The more you know, the more convicted you are, and you still refuse Jesus, your heart is hardened. And it makes salvation impossible. But, if that journey of 18 inches has already been made in your life, know this. God has done this miraculous work in you and me. We have been brought in and we have become part of God's chosen people through faith in his chosen lamb. God's wrath has passed over you and I as it had been done 3,500 years ago. And his wrath instead landed fully upon his only begotten son, Jesus, having absorbed all of that wrath for you and for me on that cross. And by faith, we have died with him and we have been raised with him. And because he has done so, why we will certainly struggle with sin and maybe even abandon or betray Christ who loves us, no one, hear me, no one who truly knows and loves Jesus will turn away from him forever as Judas did. If you truly know him and you truly love him, you will not escape his hand and you will return. True disciples will repent and return to the one who gave his body and shed his blood for them. In John 6, 39, Jesus said, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. So friends, whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, and we will in just a few minutes, we proclaim his death until he comes. So in communion, we look back in history to the cross where our sins were forgiven. And we look ahead to the day where we see him face to face. And we will share in this meal with him. Remember his promise from verse 25. 
Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And Matthew's gospel says it this way. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Disciples Church, the truth of Jesus' promise is what gives us hope in this life. That the cross was not the end for Jesus. He rose again and he ascended to his Father and he will come again to bring us home and we will join him in the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus at the head of the table. But until that day comes, and it will, we have the promise of his power and his presence through his indwelling spirit. And we are united with him and we are united with one another as members of his body. So my friends, may we live each day in light of this incredible truth. May we remember his body given and his blood shed. And may we declare this good news to the many who need to hear it and be reminded of it. Let's pray. God of all good, you have prepared for us a feast. And though we are unworthy to sit down as guests, we wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and we hide ourselves beneath his righteousness. While we gaze upon the emblems of our Savior's death, may we ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours. I presented myself an offering to remove your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, and bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. God, would you help us grasp the breadth and the length of Jesus' sacrifice to draw near, to obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, to eat and drink and testify before all men and women that we gladly, in faith, revere, love, and receive our Lord to be our life our strength, our nourishment, our joy and delight. In this supper, we remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, his agony, his cross, his redemption, and we receive assurance of pardon, adoption as sons and daughters, and his life and glory. So as the outward elements nourish our body, so may your indwelling spirit invigorate our souls until that day when we hunger and thirst no more, and we sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. In Christ's name and for his glory we pray. Amen.